256, Part 2, Chapter 2 of Gulliver's Travels. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 256, Six of One. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hello! I, yes, continue to go for runs. Actually, today was more of a walk. Thing one has turned 12. Thing one has gotten a skateboard. So thing one wanted to ride skateboard to school, uh, which meant mom wasn't going to run because mom was going to be carrying said skateboard home. Thing two had his scooter, so mom also carried Thing two's scooter. So mom lifted weights <laughs> while walking home, which was fine. Still walking, still getting out there, still brisk. It's all about briskitude. How's that for word creation right there? Right there in front of your very eyes, like that. Briskitude. The briskitudosity. <laughs> the briskitudinity of my morning has been um, legion. There we go. We'll just keep throwing in big words because you think I'm just goofing around, but actually Gulliver does it in this week's chapter as well. So, you know, there's precedent set for me by Jonathan Swift 400 years ago or so. I learn from the master is what I'm saying. But, oh, I have so much stuff to tell you about before I have to take a shower and leave for the book group that I'm going to. I told you last week I was going to listen to a visit from the Goon Squad from Jennifer Egan. Very odd book. I like the way it ended. Uh, I didn't like all of the individual chapters. Each chapter is a person, and it kind of comes full circle by the end thing she does that's so interesting is she starts kind of in the 70s, the late 70s, not the prettiest time in our history, collectively. And then um, she winds up in the future, and she does a really neat job of kind of predicting where things might be going. And it's fascinating, some of the things that she comes up with. It reminded me quite a bit of reading um, David Brin's book, Earth, in the early 90s, when he was trying to predict a scant 50 years into the future as a science fiction writer, which is tricky because you have to be able to base what you're predicting in some kind of reality. It has to be plausible, I guess, is what it comes down to. And, uh, and, and he, he, does, he does manage to do that. So, so, so does she. I think some of the things that she thought, saw coming are scarily plausible. Um, but it was, it's a hard book. It's a hard book because you start to like one of the characters and then she switches chapters and then you're onto a new character or a related character. And so you're seeing the character that you liked through somebody else's eyes. And it's very distancing, not unlike satire, but it's also strangely haunting because it's, it is kind of like, you know, real life. You meet people, you move on, you... I, I think friendship is on my mind a lot right now because life is tough, right? I mean, life is life is hard when you're a teenager. It's full of hormones and drama and what you feel, you feel to the nth degree. And it's, it's, that's hard. It is hard. It is hard to be a teenager. And then when you're an adult, it's a different level of hard because you're watching time slip away very quickly, which is hard. And perhaps, if you are of a certain age, realizing that there are things that you probably are never going to be able to do again. And for those of us who are in the theater, for those of you who are young and in or around the theater, 
this shocked me. I realized this year that I will never play an ingenue again. And I know this sounds stupid, right? Because it's like, duh. I mean, you're, I get technically, I suppose I am middle-aged. I don't feel like it, but I guess I am. And there's so little in American life that actually tells you straight up, you can't do that. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, Americans are famous for constantly reinventing themselves. And I have reinvented myself a number of times. But all of a sudden, I am confronted by the fact that there are things I cannot do any longer. I cannot play a young person on stage. I certainly couldn't play one on screen. But I, I mean, I couldn't even sell it on a theater stage when you're very, very far away from me. It's not possible. Even though I know more now and would do a better job, I am incapable of, of playing those parts. Not that anyone's going to offer them to me. It was just one of those revelations. And this whole passage of time thing has kind of been on my mind. And then a friend of mine who is roughly my age, she's been having trouble with another friend who seems to have rules. You know what I mean? Rules about friendship. This is how friends behave. You are not behaving as a friend, therefore I am not speaking to you. And it feels very, <laughs> it feels very, oh my God, did you see what Sally did? And it's, I, I'm kind of shocked, I guess, really. Because my feeling is life is hard. And if your friends aren't the people who understand that life is hard and busy and there's always something. And yeah, sometimes you're going to call me at eight in the morning and go, oh my gosh, I cannot meet you at 8.30 for coffee. I totally forgot that I had this thing to do. Your job as a friend is to go, oh, sweetie, don't even worry about it. I totally understand. It happens all the time. We'll meet next week. If that's, I don't, I, mm, I'm sitting here with my head in my hand. I don't get it. I don't understand why people get judgy anymore. Life is hard. Everybody's doing their best. Rarely have I come across people who really are just trying to be lousy at what they do. I get judgy. I know I get judgy, especially with people who I don't know. And I'm trying not to do that anymore. I'm trying to be a good person. But especially when it's a friend and somebody who you do know, I don't know. Am I crazy? Am I, are there rules about being friends? I'm kind of broadsided by this. I actually, there were there was a posse of people who I eventually called um, social vampires, people who suck the life out of you because they're very, 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 very demanding. And I do remember kind of stripping my life of the social vampires when I was in my 20s. And then, of course, I got married and I had kids. And so then your world changes, you know, 180 degrees and you're going in a completely different direction than you thought because that's what happens when you have kids. Your life is... Your, your, your patterns are built on the needs of your children, which it should be. I mean, ooh, I'm reading a really interesting book about what happens when that doesn't happen. It's called Are You My Mother? And it's a graphic novel. And wow, my sister gave it to me for my birthday, and I don't know why. I'm wondering if there's some, some hidden subtext, like don't do this to your children. I don't think so. My sister is not the kind of person who would do that. I think it's just that it's a graphic novel, and it's really, really interesting. But um, wow, scary, scary how you can screw up your kids. I'm really hoping I'm not doing that to my kids. They seem happy. Nanette, the nanny, comes over and she, <laughs> she sets them straight. <laughs> so that's fine. Nanette, the nanny, I just need to let you know. She will come over and watch the children and they will eat. And then the boys will get up from the table. They'll ask to be excused. They'll get up from the table and Nanette will say, um, excuse me? And she will kind of incline her head at their dishes. And the boys will go, oh, oh. And they'll pick up their dishes and take them into the kitchen. And then she'll say, uh-huh. And then they'll go, oh. And they'll rinse off their dishes. And then she'll nod and say, mm. And they'll go, oh, right. And they'll put the dishes in the dishwasher. And I mean, I cannot get them to do any of this. But <laughs> Nanette, can do this with the incline of her head. And she is, she's a miracle worker. She's a nanny whisperer. I've been encouraging her to go into business like super nanny. 
you know, to, to go into people's homes and to observe and then train the parents because it's rarely the children. It is almost entirely always us. It is we who are messing things up somehow. So I've learned an awful lot from Nanette and from, from watching her. So I, uh, I, I appreciate the subtle incline of the head and the mm-hmm. Someday I hope to embody that in my life anyway. So yeah, I'm going to a book group tonight. <laughs> Huge apologies. I have not been able to do any interviews uh, this week. The end of school has really whooped me and today is the last day of school. So today is the last day that I have the opportunity to very regularly and routinely record on a Friday. I am hoping I find a way to keep this up. I am not guaranteeing I will find a way to keep this up, but um, but there will there will be a podcast every week. It's just maybe a little bit more erratic, and I know that you'll understand, and that'll be fine. Um, and I, I will pick up with the interviews as soon as I possibly can. I've got some really interesting ones for you. I just uh, I have to find the time to do that. I uh, I do have, by way of explanation, a couple of other things happening. That Ning class that I am teaching over at the Knit Girl site has now been split into three. There is the full sock heel course, which is like six and a half sock heels, because one of them's really just talking through stuff. And then there's two mini classes, a toe up class covering variations on toe up heels and a top down class covering the top down heels. And, um, and so, yeah, so the, the full course is, as you might expect, a, a little bit more expensive than the mini courses are. So that should make it more affordable for some people to take the classes. Because um, I actually threw up some questions over on, on that Ning site to a, a group of teachers and said, okay, here's the class. Here's a promo video that explains everything. What's missing? And they're the ones who give me that feedback. And I thought, well, that's actually really, really helpful. So... Now, now you have the opportunity to take variations on sock heels. I also wanted to let you know, because I totally forgot to tell you this after Marilyn Sheep and Wool, I found the perfect spindle maker. And I don't say this lightly. Her name is Kate. She runs an Etsy shop called Kate's Cauldron. She used to do um, stained glass work and metal work and stuff, and now she's, she's doing spindles. She makes the split-notch spindle shafts that I love. Remember years ago when I had to send a spindle, a plying spindle, to Texas to have a broken shaft re rebuilt? <laughs> I had to do that because it was a split-notch spindle shaft very hard to find and it's the reason why this is desirable is because if you have a hook at the top of your spindle shaft or if you do um, the kind of thing where you have to make a half hitch at the top of your your spindle shaft those are not true dead hangs those are the the yarn is coming off the hook or off the half hitch not dead center it is coming off a little to the side of the center, which doesn't always mean disaster, but it does mean that when you're spinning, it's not a true center spin, and that can slow your spindle down. Now, some people, some designers, spindle designers, have found all sorts of funky ways to twist the hooks and get them to do really nifty things so that the yarn coming out of the twistified hook, there's another word for you, is at a dead hang. And that's great. I have found those to be excellent spindles when I can find them. A split notch means that the dead center of the spindle shaft has been drilled out and a notch has been cut into it so that when you bring the yarn up, your leader yarn up, and attach it to the top of the spindle so that you can spin it, you're actually pulling it through this notch so that the yarn is exiting the spindle in the dead center of the shaft. Her spindles are marvelous. I got one that's about an ounce, maybe a little bit less than an ounce, 
maybe 26 grams, 25 grams, I can't remember, 24 grams, something like that. It is perfect. It, it spins the weight of single that I like to then ply to make sock yarn out of. And it makes it beautifully. And it's light enough that if I really had good fiber and I wanted to do lace weight yarn, I could. And I love that. I will be bringing all of these spindles, the one that I had to have rebuilt for me, my new spindles from Kate's Cauldron, all of this, I will be bringing to spin you at Hofstra this summer. So if you want to see the spindles, if you can get there, that would be awesome. And um, come take my classes at Knit One Spin You. I am so excited about this. <sighs> Lots of exciting things are happening. The last two exciting things before we launch into bookish things, I have finished a pattern that I've, I've hinted at before. Kate over at Dragonfly Fibers makes a super genie and she spells it correctly, D-J-I-N-N-I, -N -N -I. Super Genie um, yarn. It's a merino cashmere nylon blend. I love it. It is discontinued, not because of her, but because of the people who make the base that she dyes, and that is tragic. However, her traveler yarn should be an excellent substitution, and it, it, that is also superwash merino, um, without the cashmere and the nylon, just superwash merino. Either way, what I have designed is based on, not just the yarn, but on the Red Bud colorway. This colorway is stunning and stupendous. It is fuchsias and blacks and pinks and dark purples and all of this stuff. And it screamed pedicure at me. I have a problem with pedicure socks, the, the little half socks where your toes are exposed. My toes get cold. And I know I have to let my toe be exposed to the air long enough for the nail polish to dry. But once it's dry, I'm freezing, really freezing. And, and it all comes to my toes. It's like in the winter, if my ears are warm, I am warm. If my toes are warm, I am warm. If either of those two things are cold, I am very cold. So I designed a pedicure sock that has a flip top. And I know you're saying, Heather, that's great. But um, if it's a sock and you're supposed to be able to wear it in a shoe, how will a flip top work? And I will tell you this, I have tested these. I have worn them in shoes and out of shoes. I've worn them walking around the house and not. And I've designed it, I, I, I engineered it. And Penny over at Little Acorn has also knit up a sample. And Eleanor at Beachcomber has teched it. And she and I have both found that when you wear these, if you, if you knit the toe flap correctly and you make the base of it long enough, it stays on your toe. And you have this lovely extra cushiony bit underneath the ball of your foot. It's a Welsh heel turn. You can... You have probably, if you've paid any attention to my socks, you know that I am in love with Welsh heels. It's a Welsh heel turn. It's a fitted arch, so it hugs the underside of your foot and massages it a little, so it's very pampery. And it has, you remember the 1960-something lollipop building in New York City? I think it's been torn down or removed or remodeled or something, but it used to be on Columbus Circle. That was the building that I took my architectural inspiration from for the pattern for Holly Golightly. Even though the book is written post-war, the movie is very much a product of the early 60s. And these are my homage to Audrey Hepburn and Holly Golightly. I will be releasing that pattern this week. And, uh, and I'm so excited about it. It's, it's, I really, really like on this particular pattern, the combination of form and function, that I think it's a, it's a beautiful design in that the color is just stunning. And I think that this particular stitch pattern really shows yarn off nicely, but it's also the function. I feel like I got it right, and I'm so proud of it. And, uh, and so proud to be able to showcase Kate's yarns because I think her colorways are just gorgeous over at Dragonfly. And then Hunter's book. Hunter is just designing up a storm. Hunter Hammerson, who did the uh, Cthulhu sock for the first Madame Defarge knit, and 
and has a new pattern based on, mm, spoiler, mm, shall I tell you, mm, Somerset Mom, yes, 1920s fabulous glamour. She has a really brilliantly constructed cap and cuffs coming in what else would Madame Defarge knit. And in between all of that, she's managed to write books, plural. Knitter's Curiosity Cabinet has been out in PDF and is now out in paper. I have a copy that I'm throwing into the mix for people who donate in any way, shape, or form during the month of June 2012. That means if you are a subscriber supporter and you subscribe to the show through that eBay thing where it takes money out of your account every month and you get your exclusive audio that way, if you are supporting the show that way, you are in the running for the book and the Mighty Distractable Embroidery Kit. Or if you make a one-time donation, you are thrown into the running as well. And again, I just take all the names and put them in a hat and draw a name and that's how I pick. And and Hunter's book, I love the concept of the Knitter's Curiosity Cabinet to begin with. And uh, and then um, her designs are just marvelous. I really, I adore her designs. So that is very exciting stuff. We have the next few chapters of Cool for Cats going out to the subscriber supporters this week and the very first installment of Canterbury Tales goes out this week too. I am, I am actually, you know, taking the big leap. It's very scary. I've been prepping and prepping and prepping and it is really actually scary to do Chaucer. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of at that point where the fear has turned into excitement and I think that that's the right time to record. I'm <laughs> very hopeful about that. And a uh, last bit of Yarny news is my D-Stash continues to roll along on eBay. Um, I think some of the things end tonight, and then the, it's just kind of a rolling D-Stash. I'm, I'm making more bags of things to put up on eBay. And, uh, you know, some of, some of them are big bags for charity stuff big big uh things of acrylics and um and not you know not like the powder blue or the powder yellow and they're actually some kind of interesting colors which makes them good for adult lapgans and afghans and prayer shawls and things like that that have to be made out of acrylics for uh the allergy reasons but that you don't want to you know make everything out of variegated baby colors so so yeah, so that's that. And this weekend is Father's Day. I hope our male listeners have a happy Father's Day. And, uh, and I hope that y'all are finding interesting things to do and see and go be with. My boys want to go to the beach with the husband. I'm not sure if this is going to happen or not, but I thought that was kind of interesting. It's, you know, it's kind of a schlep. We are, while we are near water we are kind of in a landlocked area we have to get around dc to get to the water and that can that can take some doing so i don't i don't know what we're going to do this weekend but i hope you all have marvelous time all right in bookish news but not yet gulliver news jay mcinerney wrote a very interesting piece on gatsby uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert uh he does strangely Give the entire plot of Gatsby in the middle of this essay. Skip it if you haven't ever read Gatsby before. I do highly recommend that you read the book before you see the Baz Luhrmann movie, if in fact you plan on seeing the Baz Luhrmann movie at all. I enjoyed Moulin Rouge. My sister wanted to throw the television through... <laughs> a very large piece of glass when she had to watch 10 minutes of it. I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I thought it was a spectacle. And that's pretty much all it was going to be. Gatsby is trickier because the book is lovely. And one of Jay McInerney's points in his essay about 
Gatsby and why it is great is that the the plot is actually kind of threadbare. It is Fitzgerald's use of language that elevates the book from the status of soap opera to the status of great work of literature. And I think that that is absolutely true. His language is lovely. But then honestly, I kind of think that that's true of quite a few books that are good. It's the language, whether it's Shakespeare that we're talking about or, uh, or A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. How things are said by good authors often evokes something in us that transcends the simplicity of the action of the statement. You know what I'm saying? Kind of? What is it? Steve Martin's joke? Oh, it was on his Wild and Crazy Guy album. He has a whole section. For you English teachers who are younger than me, you may not know this, but the Wild and Crazy Guy album has a whole section on it about language. And I remember (laughs) playing a section of this for my students because all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh my gosh, there's all this really funny stuff in there. And he he has a part where he talks about writing and all these books that he'd written. And he said, and this book was a real turning point for me because that's when I started to use verbs. (laughs) It was so cool to watch the faces of my students register that they got the joke and, and they were cracking up. It's very funny. And he talks at one point, he talks about somebody having a really great style of speech or writing that they have a way with words as opposed to, oh, I don't know, not have way, I guess. <laughs> and it's just, oh my gosh, you just need to listen. Steve Martin at his, at his best, the Wild and Crazy Guy album that had, uh, I think that also has King Tut on it, which is shocking and, and does kind of present to you the wide range of the Steve Martin humor at that time. Anyway, Gatsby and Fitzgerald and having a way with words. Uh, the Baz Luhrmann trailer, if you haven't seen it yet, the parties look stunning. I am very excited about the parties. Um, I was kind of excited about Leonardo DiCaprio, but I'll tell you, I actually think he's too old now, but I'll tell you something even more important. This is something I learned while I was teaching Gatsby over and over and over again for quite a few years. There is something that everybody on the planet seems to have missed about Gatsby in the book, The Great Gatsby. And I will share that with you right now. Gatsby is this legend, right? Everybody's talking about him for like the first 40 pages. Everybody's talking about him. Nobody's met him. Have you seen him? Is he here? Is he at his own party? Oh my gosh, where is he? He's like this cipher. He's a myth. He's larger than life, right? Okay. If that's true, and if he's Robert Redford, or Brad Pitt, or Leonardo DiCaprio, then when he walks into a room, correct me if I'm wrong, you would notice. Because I tend to think we would notice Robert Redford back in 1972, or Brad Pitt, or Leonardo DiCaprio. Even if we didn't know who they were, I think those are guys who we probably would notice when they walked into a room. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, you know, throw that out there and, and stretch. All right, if that's the case, then we're in trouble because one of the things that happens in The Great Gatsby is Nick, who's the main character, is talking to a guy for a page, I think. It's been a while since I've read it, but I think it's at least a page of dialogue back and forth before Nick finally says to this guy, say, have you seen our host? Everybody's talking about this Gatsby, but I haven't been able to say thank you for the invitation. And the guy who he's talking to looks at him and says, but I'm Gatsby. And Nick says, oh my gosh, holy cow, I didn't, I didn't know it was you. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know about Gatsby. He doesn't look like his myth. He doesn't look like this guy who all these legends are about. He doesn't look rich. He doesn't, and I am being very specific now, look like Robert Redford or Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio. In fact, he probably looks more like Tobey Maguire, who I think is adorable, and casting no aspersions. But Tobey Maguire looks like a guy who, probably a guy you went to high school with. And I think that's kind of the point, and it keeps getting lost. 
I think the pressure for Gatsby to be some kind of gorgeous Hollywood superstar hunk is enormous, and it's really missing the point. So I'm, I love what McInerney had to say. I love seeing the trailer. I love seeing the style because, oh my gosh, if Baz Luhrmann does anything right, he does style. But I fear that once again, the resonance of Gatsby has been lost on a filmmaking endeavor. And that makes me a little sad. Regardless though, I have linked to uh, McInerney's post and embedded in that post is the trailer, which is worth a watch. I mean, it's certainly not appalling. It's, it's just perhaps not the book. The music is certainly not the music, but the, it may not be the book that you read. And, uh, and if you haven't read it before, oh, please do. Oh, please do. And actually go and listen because the language is so beautiful. It's just marvelous. So that was, that was one thing. And then from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, Valerie sent me a marvelous video on YouTube. It is Shakespeare versus Dr. Seuss. It is a rap. It is vulgar. <laughs> Don't watch it with small children. And um, I think the consensus from the comments in the, uh, in the notes on the on the YouTube video was that Shakespeare won. And I, I think he may have won purely on speed and polysyllabic vocabulary. I think perhaps he was being counted for that. I thought some, <laughs> some of the things that uh, Thing 1 and Thing 2 had to say uh, from Dr. Seuss's side were really quite marvelous. And the, the cat in the hat was funny too. But, uh, but it's, worth, it's worth watching. And then just, <laughs> just to stay ridiculous, it looks like these people have done a bunch of these videos and um these are epic rap battles of history we have mr t versus mr rogers we have darth vader versus hitler <laughs> justin bieber versus beethoven <laughs> uh master chief versus leonidas and the grinch versus shrek and there's all there's just whole so many of them, but um, people are are vying for, begging for Katniss Everdeen versus Bella Swan. So keep your eyes on the people who have done these rap videos because they uh, they seem to be doing good work for us, keeping us keeping us smiling and laughing, and you know also with a wink to the audience because most of the vulgar things that Shakespeare says in the video are actually vulgarities that. Shakespeare either invented or used at some point in one of his plays. So he, they know their stuff, I think. I mean, Aaron, Aaron Ziegler should probably check it out and, and correct me, but I, th I think most of the things that, well, not all of them. No, now I'm actually thinking of a couple that Shakespeare didn't say, but um, still funny. And then I also got an email from Tara. She's been laid up and, and miserable. She's... Uh, She's a listener and she sent me, she has been sending me links to some of the most beautiful book-based art I've ever seen. And the one that she sent me today is just so haunting. I am putting a link to the book art for you in the show notes. And, um, and there was also a polychromatic typewriter where you can paint in color using this particular typewriter. It's a marvelous idea. And, um, I have no idea if it works or not. It doesn't matter. It's just kind of beautiful, I thought. I just liked it. So I am linking to those things in the show notes for you, for your enjoyment as well. But now without yammering any more in your ear, let's get to Gulliver. There, there are a couple things that I wanted to um, give you background for before we start the chapter, and then the rest of it I can just talk to you about on the flip side. So Aaron Ziegler and I were writing back and forth, and we, <laughs> we both agree that, at least in, in this first part of uh, Brobdignag, the, the uh, part, part two of four of Gulliver's Travels, that he's, <sighs> Jonathan Swift is just making up words, and they kind of sound dirty. And we just, we've just agreed that that is kind of the way. So if, if some of these words that you hear that Swift made up kind of ring oddly to you. They ring oddly to us too. 
So we're all we're all in that one together. Um, now, in Lilliput, you might recall that the aging process went more quickly for the smaller people, which seemed to make sense to Isaac Asimov scientifically. In Brobdingnag, even though everybody's much, much bigger, 12 times bigger than we humans are, um, they don't seem to age more slowly. Or if they do, it's not referred to any differently than than our age. So when they talk about a nine-year-old girl, she is in fact a nine-year-old girl. Because the, the emperor was something ridiculous, like 28 years old, and he was kind of an old man. So... That in, I mean, in, in Lilliput. And here you don't see that kind of discrepancy happen. So even though distance and size and all of that stuff is, is at 12 times the British equivalent, the, hu- the human equivalent, um, a- aging doesn't seem to have fallen into that. So just in case you were noticing things like that, don't worry about it. Just let it go. It seems like Swift, as I think I've said before, kind of picks and chooses where he wants to be scientifically accurate. It wasn't that he couldn't have figured it out. I think it was that it gummed up the narrative. And and so he really just dealt with it when he kind of had to. And it's something that I mentioned last time is most people tend to see the Lilliputians as being amoral or immoral because of the way that they were going to punish Gulliver for this supposed, for his supposed slights. And that, that may be true, but also we have to keep in mind that even though it was an extraordinary expense for them, they fed him, they housed him, they uh, in, in many ways cared for Gulliver, which seems kind of strange when you're talking about people who are a 12th his size, but, but they did. And, um, and all that's true. Well, things are, interesting in Brobdingnag. And I I said to you before, a lesser writer would simply have reversed everything in Brobdingnag in the lands of the land of the giants. They would just have said, you know, oh, well, if the emperor who's little was a bad guy or spoiled or petulant or mean or nasty or whatever, well, then we'll make this one magnanimous and wonderful and good. And if the people in Lilliput had a small, petty-minded... I mean, you know, the ridiculousness of accusing Gulliver of having had a romantic liaison with uh, Walpole's wife, the, the guy who was the stand-in for Walpole. If if we're going to do that, then, you know, on the Brobdingnag side of things, we'll treat it differently. Uh, Swift is not that lousy a writer. <laughs> it's much more complicated as you would expect. And and you're you're going to you're going to see the treatment of Gulliver here in Brobdingnag take on two very interesting tinges. One is how he is treated by the farmer's daughter, and one is how he's treated by the farmer. And I I think Swift does a marvelous job at graying the water. You know, it's it's uh, it is not a hundred percent good, nor is anything a hundred percent bad. It's very complicated and and discussions of ethics and morality and value and things like that, I think always are. If they're gonna be interesting, they're gonna be complicated and and that's that's good, I think. Uh, th- more on that, I didn't want to, sp- I'm trying not to spoil things. Um, there's another thing that he does here, which I think is funny. You may have heard the word homunculus before. Uh, it's, I mean, people don't use it very often, but it, it meant a, a little, little man or diminutive person. The Greek word for dwarf is nanos. So just keep this in mind. Nanos is Greek for dwarf. Homunculus is Latin for little man. Now, Gulliver, as you may recall, he's he's not stupid and he's had some learning and he's certainly intelligent enough as a sailor, but he probably isn't an expert in Greek or Latin. And he he butchers a number of languages all at once, uh, trying to sound kind of highfalutin and uh, 
making himself out to be perhaps a little bit bigger than he really is, which, you know, obviously metaphorically makes a lot of sense because while he's feeling very, very small, at least maybe he can make his language sound big. And, and in doing so, he, he botches it pretty, pretty badly and makes up words, uh, Latin words that, that don't exist. The, the Latin doesn't exist. The Italian doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's just kind of funny. That happens fairly early in the chapter, so you'll hear it pretty close. The two other things that you're going to hear close to the beginning are uh, Gulliver is going to be compared, this is not giving anything away, to, to some kind of vermin or weasel or lizardy thing. It's hard to tell what he's actually being compared to, but it's not nice. <clears throat> and I think this is one of those places where it becomes really interesting that the Brobdingnagians, I mean, you can't fault them for thinking that he is a little insecure rodent, right? I mean, because he is. He's a twelfth their size. And it's just marvelous, isn't it, how he seems to be able to speak and communicate, even though he is a little weasel. And I think it is just fascinating that Swift, back in 17, you know, he took him 10 years to write this, so it's 400 years ago, was actually putting this in front of readers, this kind of relativity thing, forcing people to recognize, if they're paying attention, forcing them to recognize that we may, like Oliver, like it, it looked like, when Gulliver was in Lilliput, that it looks like we are these grand humans. We are these big people. We are the machers. We are the, the people in charge. We're the best, is where I'm going. To put in front of his readership this turnaround and say things like, it is possible that we aren't as great as we think we are. And... In fact, everything's relative, depending on where your perspective is. And it, it brought to mind something very, very modern. My, my sons like to watch science stuff on Discovery and Bravo and, and things like that. And they've been watching on, uh, I think on PBS, a uh, Stephen Hawking thing. Stephen Hawking has been doing yeoman service in trying to educate children about science. He has a novel that he wrote and all sorts of neat stuff that my kids have read. Well, he... Uh, recently, I may have even been on an interview, he was talking about how he would not like to have the Earth discovered by aliens. He would not like to meet an alien from another planet because he is convinced that any alien race that travels all the way to get here would not ET-like show up and befriend us, but they would kick our butts and take our resources and leave. And I thought, oh, golly Moses. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because how do we treat new, untainted virgin soil when, when we go exploring? Well, we humans have typically gone in and taken whatever was of value by force and brought that stuff home to be used by us. So I thought it was a remarkably modern take on perspective that Swift is putting out there when he's showing us how the Brebdignagians treat Gulliver and think of Gulliver and I think I, I said last week, you know, one of the reasons that we can love Gulliver is that he never treated the Lilliputians as though they were less than. He never treated them like they were mice. He saw people who just happened to be small. That is not going to happen in Brobdingnag. In fact, it's not going to be good for him very often at all in Brobdingnag, which makes the end of the Brobdingnag section that much more interesting. So that was one thing I kind of wanted to alert you to because you're going to be hearing that that theme that that uh, 
reference point, the, the, it all depends on where your perspective is, your point of view is, uh, you're going to hear that repeated throughout the rest of the book, but especially right now in, in, in this section. The other thing is the, the madhouse and the freak show. Uh, I am trying to remember if I talked about this before. I was in a show at UCLA my last semester, and I was in the madhouse. And we were doing, what was the show? The Changeling. One of, we were doing The Changeling and Hippolytus in Rep With Each Other, two of the most lurid dramas in the history of theater. And it was hard. It was hard. And it was hard to be in the madhouse. And we did a lot of research individually. I mean, we, the actors, had to go and research madhouses from the Jacobean period, which is right now. Now, we, we can question Dr. Seward in Dracula, we can look at some of his techniques and go, really? That's what you were doing? All right. But Seward was a saint compared to people who ran madhouses in the Jacobean period. It was um, the loonies. People would pay money to come and watch the loonies perform. And we actually had to learn Morris dances People in the UK will know what I'm talking about. We had to wear the bells. We had to do the whole thing. And so there we are in our gowns and our dirty makeup and bruised and battered and missing teeth and all of that. And we had to put on jangly bells and we had to get our sticks out and we had to do our Morris dances. And that was real. People would pay money to come and watch the loonies dance. So this got me thinking because this this gets referred to um, being put on public spectacle is how it's referred to in this particular chapter. This made me think, well, what's our modern day equivalent? And I'm going to throw some things out there and then I'm going to let you put more into the show notes because I know you're going to think of more. Um, I was thinking about Jersey Shore, actually. I've only watched like 35 seconds before I screamed and turned off the television. I couldn't do it. But some reality TV... The Real Housewives of stuff does not strike me as being all that different from a freak show. Because how do we feel when we watch those things? Well, thank God I'm not them. Right? I mean, we look at those people on those kinds of shows. I'm not talking about Survivor or The Great Race or, or Amazing Race or, or anything like that. I'm talking about shows where people are getting famous for bad behavior. It's a slightly different version than a madhouse because, of course, the people, the people in the madhouse really didn't have a whole lot of wherewithal to improve their position. But the people on reality shows today, I mean, they could watch reruns of Oprah, right? And not behave the way they do. But it's... Or uh, what was the... What's that show? Um, Jackass? Yeah? Or uh, I even get bugged by America's Funniest Home Videos because it's always people who don't seem quite very bright and somebody's always getting hurt. And I, I don't see that much difference. I Or tabloids, you know, even tabloids at the checkout stand sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the loony bin all over again. And my an old friend of mine back at UCLA, when we would drive on the freeways, in Los Angeles. Anytime there's an accident, of course, traffic stops. This is true everywhere. I know this. I've been in traffic jams lots of places across the country as I drove around, and I saw this happening. He called it RPS, which stood for residual pinhead slowing, <laughs> which, which I just thought was so accurate because it's kind of like watching the crazy people in the loony bin. It's, there's that tinge of there but for the grace of God go I, but there's also that, ooh, look, blood. There's something about us that wants to see that. And I think it is because we are glad it is not us, right? I mean, there's something psychological going on there. And your comments, I know, will be far more erudite and interesting. But, um, but it's, it's something interesting to to look at and think about. Oh, and speaking of comments, Renee emailed, and yes, I was not dreaming. There was plenty 
of circumnavigation of the Pacific Rim that Swift would have had access to. And they did know that whole part of Monterey Bay and, and everything. And, uh, and so, yeah, she's, she actually is in Marin County, so she knows the part that the, the map is, is referring to. So that was very cool. Even before Captain Cook went around and plotted everything on an official map, people knew. People knew. I love stuff like that. And of course, it would have been common knowledge to everyone else, but because our kind of quote-unquote official record comes from Cook, we modern people, we don't know. We don't know that that was a known, a given, uh, uh, something that people knew and talked about. I love that. Stuff like this is just so cool. Okay, I'm shutting up now, and I'm going to play you Aaron Ziegler reading part two, chapter two of Gulliver's Travels, and then I'll catch you on the flip side. Chapter two, a description of the farmer's daughter, the author carried to a market town, and then to the metropolis, the particulars of his journey. My mistress had a daughter of nine years old, a child of towardly parts for her age, very dexterous at her needle, and skillful in dressing her baby. Her mother and she contrived to fit up the baby's cradle for me against the night. The cradle was put into a small drawer of a cabinet, and the drawer placed upon a hanging shelf for fear of the rats. This was my bed all the time I stayed with those people, although made more convenient by degrees as I began to learn their language and make my wants known. This young girl was so handy that after I had once or twice pulled off my clothes before her, she was able to dress and undress me, although I never gave her that trouble when she would let me do either myself. She made me seven shirts and some other linen of as fine cloth as could be got, which indeed was coarser than sackcloth, and these she constantly washed for me with her own hands. She was likewise my schoolmistress to teach me the language. When I pointed to anything, she told me the name of it in her own tongue, so that in a few days I was able to call for whatever I had a mind to. She was very good-natured, and not above forty foot high, being little for her age. She gave me the name of Grildrig, which the family took up, and afterwards the whole kingdom. The word imports what the Latins call nanunculus, the Italians homunculatino, and the English mannequin. To her I chiefly owe my preservation in that country. We never parted while I was there, I called her my Glumdalclitch, or Little Nurse, and I should be guilty of great ingratitude if I omitted this honourable mention of her care and affection towards me, which I heartily wish it lay in my power to requite as she deserves, instead of being the innocent but unhappy instrument of her disgrace, as I have too much reason to fear. It now began to be known and talked of in the neighbourhood that my master had found a strange animal in the field about the bigness of a splacknock, but exactly shaped in every part like a human creature, which it likewise imitated in all its actions, seemed to speak in a little language of its own, had already learned several words of theirs, went erect upon two legs, was tame and gentle, would come when it was called, do whatever it was bid, and had the finest limbs in the world, and a complexion fairer than a nobleman's daughter of three years old. Another farmer who lived hard by, and was a particular friend of my master, came on a visit on purpose to inquire into the truth of this story. I was immediately produced and placed upon a table, where I walked as I was commanded, drew my hanger, put it up again, made my reverence to my master's guest, asked him in his own language how he did, and told him he was welcome, just as my little nurse had instructed me. This man, who was old and dim-sighted, put on his spectacles to behold me better, at which I could not forbear laughing very heartily, for his eyes appeared like the full moon shining into a chamber at two windows. Our people, who discovered the cause of my mirth, bore me company in laughing, at which the old fellow was fool enough to be angry and out of countenance. He had the character of a great miser, and to my misfortune he well deserved it by the cursed advice he gave my master to show me as a sight upon a market day in the next town, which was half an hour's riding, about two and twenty miles from our house. I guess there was some mischief contriving when I observed my master and his friend whispering together, sometimes pointing at me, and my fears made me fancy that I overheard and understood some of their words. But the next morning, Glumdoclitch, my little nurse, 
told me the whole matter, which she cunningly picked out from her mother. The poor girl laid me on her bosom and fell a-weeping with shame and grief. She apprehended some mischief would happen to me from rude, vulgar folks who might squeeze me to death or break one of my limbs by taking me in their hands. She had also observed how modest I was in my nature, how nicely I regarded my honour, and what an indignity I should conceive to be exposed for money as a public spectacle to the meanest of the people. She said her papa and mamma had promised that Grildrig should be hers, but now she found they meant to serve her as they did last year, when they pretended to give her a lamb, and yet as soon as it was fat, sold it to a butcher. For my own part, I may truly affirm that I was less concerned than my nurse. I had a strong hope, which never left me, that I should one day recover my liberty, and as to the ignominy of being carried about for a monster, I conceived myself to be a perfect stranger in the country, and that such a misfortune could never be charged upon me as a reproach if ever I should return to England, since the King of Great Britain himself, in my condition, must have undergone the same distress." My master, pursuant to the advice of his friend, carried me in a box the next market day to the neighboring town, and took along with him his little daughter, my nurse, upon a pillion behind me. The box was close on every side, with a little door for me to go in and out, and a few gimlet holes to let in air. The girl had been so careful to put the quilt of her baby's bed into it for me to lie down on. However, I was terribly shaken and discomposed in the journey, although it were but of half an hour, for the horse went about forty foot at every step, and trotted so high that the agitation was equal to the rising and falling of a ship in a great storm, but much more frequent. Our journey was somewhat further than from London to St. Albans. My master alighted at an inn which he used to frequent, and after consulting a while with the innkeeper and making some necessary preparations, he hired the Grultrude, or crier, to give notice through the town of a strange creature to be seen at the sign of the Green Eagle, not so big as a splacknuck, an animal in the country very finely shaped, about six foot long, and in every part of the body resembling an human creature, could speak several words and perform an hundred diverting tricks. I was placed upon a table in the largest room of the inn, which might be near three hundred foot square. My little nurse stood on a low stool close to the table to take care of me and direct what I should do. My master, to avoid a crowd, would suffer only thirty people at a time to see me. I walked about on the table as the girl commanded. She asked me questions as far as she knew my understanding of the language reached, and I answered them as loud as I could. I turned about several times to the company paid my humble respects, said they were welcome, and used some other speeches I had been taught. I took up a thimble filled with liquor which Glumdalclitch had given me for a cup and drank their health. I drew out my hanger and flourished it after the manner of fencers in England. My nurse gave me part of a straw, which I exercised as a pike, having learned the art in my youth. I was that day shown to twelve sets of company, and is often forced to go over again with the same fopperies, till I was half dead with weariness and vexation, for those who had seen me made such wonderful reports that the people were ready to break down the doors to come in. My master, for his own interest, would not suffer anyone to touch me except my nurse, and to prevent danger, benches were set round the table at such a distance as to put me out of everybody's reach. However, an unlucky schoolboy aimed a hazelnut directly at my head, which very narrowly missed me. Otherwise, it came with so much violence that it would have infallibly knocked out my brains, for it was almost as large as a small pumpion. But I had the satisfaction to see the young rogue well beaten and turned out of the room. My master gave public notice that he would show me again the next market day, and in the meantime he prepared a more convenient vehicle for me, which he had reason enough to do, for I was so tired with my first journey, and with entertaining company eight hours together, that I could hardly stand upon my legs or speak a word. It was at least three days before I recovered my strength, and that I might have no rest at home, all the neighbouring gentlemen from an hundred miles round, hearing of my fame, came to see me at my master's own house. There could not be fewer than thirty persons with their wives and children, for the country is very populous, 
and my master demanded the rate of a full room whenever he showed me at home, although it were only a single family, so that for some time I had but little ease every day of the week, except Wednesday, which is their Sabbath, although I were not carried to the town. My master, finding how profitable I was like to be, resolved to carry me to the most considerable cities of the kingdom, having therefore provided himself with all things necessary for a long journey and settling his affairs at home, he took leave of his wife, and upon the 17th of August, 1703, about two months after my arrival, we set out for the metropolis situated near the middle of that empire and about 3,000 miles distant from our house. My master made his daughter Glumdelklitch ride behind me. She carried me on her lap in a box tied about her waist. The girl had lined it on all sides with the softest cloth she could get, well quilted underneath, furnished it with her baby's bed, provided me with linen and other necessities, and made everything as convenient as she could. We had no other company but a boy of the house, who rode after us with the luggage. My master's design was to show me in all the towns by the way, and to step out of the road for fifty or an hundred miles to any village or person of quality's house where he might expect custom. We made easy journeys of not above seven or eight score miles a day, for Glumdelklitch, on purpose to spare me, complained she was tired with the trotting of the horse. She often took me out of my box, at my own desire, to give me air and show me the country, but always held me fast by leading strings. We passed over five or six rivers, many degrees broader and deeper than the Nile or the Ganges, and there was hardly a riverlet so small as the Thames at London Bridge. We were ten weeks in our journey, and I was shown in eighteen large towns, besides many villages and private families. On the twenty-sixth day of October, we arrived at the metropolis, called in their language, Lorbrogrud, or Pride of the Universe. My master took a lodging in the principal street of the city, not far from the royal palace, and put out bills in the usual form, containing an exact description of my person and parts. He hired a large room between three and four hundred foot wide. He provided a table, sixty foot in diameter, upon which I was to act my parts, and palisadoed it round three foot from the edge, and as many high to prevent my falling over. I was shown ten times a day to the wonder and satisfaction of all people. I could now speak the language tolerably well, and perfectly understood every word that was spoken to me. Besides, I had learned their alphabet, and could make a shift to explain a sentence here and there, for Glumdelklitch had been my instructor while we were at home and at leisure hours during our journey. She carried a little book in her pocket, not much larger than a Sanson's atlas. It was a common treatise for the use of young girls, giving a short account of their religion. Out of this she taught me my letters and interpreted the words. So I know today's chapter is a little short, but that is because next week's chapter is so long. And, uh, and I wanted to make sure that I gave it enough time to deal with some of the, the larger philosophical and moral issues that come to play next week. And of course, I'm sure you didn't miss it. There was a direct dig at George I uh, when, when Gulliver was talking about himself being a perfect stranger. I considered myself to be a perfect stranger in the country and that such a misfortune could never be charged upon me as a reproach if I ever should return to England, since the king of Great Britain himself, in my condition, must have undergone the same distress. And of course, George was a perfect stranger in England and didn't speak the language. And, um, and yeah. Swift just wanted to remind you of that, point that out, let that sit with you for a little bit. Um, also, don't know if you knew the word pillion. The little girl rode behind her, behind her father on a pillion. It was just a, a cushion that was placed behind the saddle that let uh, an extra rider ride on the back of the horse. And oh, the last thing I keep forgetting to tell you, the SFF audio that I recorded with Julie from Forgotten Classics and Jesse from... SFF Audio Podcast is up, and there is a link to it in the show notes. It is a long, rambling conversation, and Jesse, actually, for the show notes, it's almost like he transcribed stream of conscious bullet points of what we talk about, and I read over them, and I thought, but we weren't stoned while we were talking. It's, <laughs> it is a wide-ranging conversation that I hope you enjoy. 
So if you have a moment and are curious to see what a conversation like that would sound like, that included me, uh, please go visit SFF Audio Podcast and, uh, and you can get there directly to the, the episode from the show notes at just-the-books.com. And there you are. I, uh, I am going to leave you now. I hope you have a great week. I hope I get to record next Friday like usual. That would be just marvelous. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Have a great one. I'll talk to you later. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, Volume 2, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlit.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate, and all of them help keep Craftlet and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.